so that mic works. There you go. We are in Psalm 100 this morning. If you remember, years and ages ago, we started with Psalm 90, and we work all the way through the 90s of the Psalms, and we finish in that sermon series today with Psalm 100. We do glory in our Redeemer, even when mics don't work and they give us feedback, um, when kids are learning how to participate in corporate worship, when we are tired. We glory in our Redeemer, so it's okay for things not to go perfectly on a Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, okay? So let's all recognize that these are uh, different times, and we are okay with that. We will continue to glory in, in our Redeemer. Um, it's, it's okay. Children, we are glad that you are in the service with us. We do prepare this little children's worship bulletin that you may not think is the greatest thing, um, but it's something for you. And uh, as always, you will have a place there to write or to draw something in there. Um, and the sermon this morning is about being thankful to God. So perhaps you can draw something that reminds you about how you or your daddy or, or your mommy or why you're thankful about God. I thought about putting sort of a poll in the children's bulletin for the kids to, you know, asking the question, do you think that your parents are thankful and joyful? Uh, but Jeff told me not to do that, so we didn't do that. Um, I'm sure my kids will... I don't know how they will answer to that question. But Psalm 100, um, I'm glad to be here. I'm thankful that we get to gather together and hear God's word. And I pray that the Lord Jesus will uh, now comfort and encourage and strengthen you by faith through his word. And finally, before we jump into the text, uh, we do want to recognize that not everybody is in this room, uh, that many of us are still not able to gather together. And if you are hearing this sermon later in the week, we miss you, brothers and sisters. We're praying for you. And uh, we hope to have you here with us uh, together as we worship God in Christ. Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we rejoice in the person, the death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now actively ministering to us by gathering us together as His people, revealing and declaring His Word to us, giving us faith to trust and apply Your Word to our lives. Father, we are thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully alive, reigning at Your right hand, holding all things together by the word of His power, sovereignly working all things for His own glory and the good of His people. Father, we are thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns supreme above all things. And we pray now, God, that You will please help us, Your people, to 
pay attention, to hear your word with ears of faith, and to obey, to rejoice, to give thanks to God for what you have done for us in Christ. Father, we pray these things for the good of your church and ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ in and through us. Amen. Do you consider yourself a joyful and thankful person? That's the question that I wanted to add in the kids' bulletin, and I didn't. But I I will ask you this morning. Do you consider yourself a joyful and thankful person? Will those who live and work with you say that you are a joyful and thankful person? Friends, I'm the first to admit that joy and thanksgiving are not the first two words that come to my mind when I think about my own life and ministry. But even a more important question for us this morning is this. Are we a joyful and thankful church? Are we a people whose lives and worship are characterized by joyful faith and thanksgiving to God for what He has done for us in Christ? And this this question matters, friends, because that's, that's the kind of church we want to be. It matters because we want to be a people who treasure God's glory in Christ, as our vision statement says. But friends, we, we want the glory of Christ to be more than a statement in our website. We, we want the glory of Christ to actually be our treasure as we live together and worship together as God's people. And you cannot treasure in which, in that in which you find no joy. There, there's not such a thing as joyless or thankless treasuring. And God's word this morning calls us to joyful worship that is rooted in the character and work of God. Psalm 100 is a song of thanksgiving, as the title in verse 1 says. And although it's, it's a short psalm, it's a hard word for our own cultural context today. We are not a happy people when it comes to our culture. We are not a thankful culture. Before we jump into the text, I would like to at least attempt to give you a working definition of thanksgiving. And I will say that thanksgiving is faith at work. It's something of faith. And what, what is it that faith does? Well, faith looks to God in His faithful provision, both in the past and in the present, and faith trusts that God's provision is indeed good. And then that trust leads to an expression of, of faithful love to God based on who He is and in His provision. Thanksgiving says, God, I, I love you. You are my portion in this life. And finally, faith working thanksgiving leads to our giving witness to God's glory and His provision in our lives. So thanksgiving says, look guys, look at what God has done for me and for us. It is proclamatory in, by, by nature. So thanksgiving is a sort of three-dimensional reality based on God's revelation of Himself and His faithfulness towards us. It involves faith and love and proclamation to the world. 
with that definition of thanksgiving, then we will look at three truths about God this morning that I pray will encourage our hearts to rejoice in God and to give thanks to Him. First, if you're taking notes, in verses 1 and 2 we will see that the Lord is the creator of the world. Second, in verses 3 and 4, that the Lord is the redeemer of His people. And third, in verse 5, that the Lord is the keeper of the covenant. So creator, redeemer, and covenant keeping. Three reasons why we ought to give thanks to God. We begin first in verses 1 and 2 with the first truth about God. The Lord is the creator of the world. Now, to be sure, there's nothing in the text that explicitly talks about God as creator. Right? That there's no mention of creation in Psalm 100. What is explicit in Psalm 100 is that God demands the worship of all the earth. Look there in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Who? All the earth. So the question is, why does God command the whole earth to worship Him? Does He even have the right to do or to make such a demand? That's a good question. And the answer is, absolutely He does. Yes, He does. The point is actually settled in the book of Psalms. So reflecting on Genesis 1.1, for example, Psalm 33 says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So hopefully you see the logic of Psalm 33 and that's the theological framework of the book of Psalms. God made all things and owns all things and therefore He calls all the inhabitants of the world to worship Him. Notice also what kind of worship God commands from us in verses 1 and 2. God commands worship that issues or overflows from the heart. From the heart. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. You see, true worship engages the entire person, including the affections of your heart. True worship is more than simply knowing things about God. Now, to be sure, knowing God truly is essential for true worship of God. For you, you cannot love truly what you do not know rightly. However, it is possible to have knowledge about God without love for God. You can have a robust theology and still lack the kind of affection of the heart that is proper and fitting as a response to the glory of God. So God made the world for His own glory, and He is most glorified when His creatures come to Him in wholehearted worship. Wholehearted worship. And that means, friends, that whether you are a Christian or not, The God of the Bible demands your allegiance. 
You owe your very life to the Creator who made you, and the proper response is to worship Him, not unwillingly, but with gladness of heart. Even if you're, you're not a Christian, the God of the Bible calls you to worship Him with gladness of heart. All the earth. All the earth. The psalmist goes on to describe worship as a sacrificial offering. A sacrificial offering. As others have pointed out, the title of the psalm could be referring to a song that was written specifically for the occasion of the Thanksgiving offering. The Thanksgiving offering was one of many sacrifices and offerings that the Lord instituted for worship in Israel in the book of Leviticus. So I'm sure you have all read the book of Leviticus this last week. And if you remember, there are many sacrifices and offerings. One of them is the Thanksgiving offering. And the, the title of the psalm, uh, in Psalm 100, seems to fit that occasion. It's a psalm for giving thanks. But more importantly, notice how worship is described in verse 2. Worship here in verse 2 is, is described as serving the Lord and as coming into His presence. Serving and coming into His presence. And friends, that is typical language used for worship at the temple. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel will come before the Lord as they enter the gates into the courts of the temple to present their offering to the priest for sacrifice. But what is amazing here in Psalm 100, friends, is that this sacrificial giving of thanks is not limited to those under the Levitical system of worship. Rather, God summons the whole earth to offer Him the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. So He's, he's invited, inviting the whole world to come into His temple, to come into the courts, and to offer sacrificial offering of thanksgiving to Him. And it is good to remember, friends, here that from the, the, from the very beginning, the whole creation... The whole creation was meant to be the place where God's presence dwelt among His people. God made Adam and Eve in His own image as His representatives. And as image bearers, they were supposed to spread the image of God throughout the earth and to expand its dominion to the whole earth. That was the original plan. From the beginning, humanity was meant to serve God in a priestly-like manner, mediating the glory of God to the rest of creation. And here in verse 1, we have at least an echo of that plan. As, again, the whole earth is summoned to come before God's presence with singing. And if you are familiar with your Bible, we know that that was not the case. Through Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world, and humanity failed in their priestly ministry to the creation. And that's another theme that the book of Psalms picked up, this theme of sin and rebellion. Right at the start, in Psalm number 2, we find the nations raging against God and plotting to remove Him from His rightful throne. And Psalm 14 
is categorical when he says that we have all turned aside and together have become corrupt. So you see, rather than propagating the image of God and extending its dominion to the ends of the earth, the image of God in men and women has been marred by sin. The image bearer has committed treason. As Paul says in Romans 1, Although we knew God, we did not honor Him as God, nor we gave thanks to Him. We have rejected God, turned to worship the creation rather than the Creator, and therefore we deserve the wrath and judgment of God, which will come swiftly upon the earth on the last day. So the question for us this morning, friends, is how then, how then will God restore true worship on the earth? If those He created to fill the earth with His glory fail to do the work, and that includes you and me, apart from Christ, then what will God do to restore the worship of His name on the earth? How will He do this? And the answer to that question, I believe, is our second point and our second truth about God this morning in verses 3 and 4. God is not only the creator of the world, the world, but He is also the redeemer of His people. So God's solution to the, problem, to the problem of sin is to redeem from the world a people for His own possession and through them to restore the worship of God on earth. Brothers and sisters, what we are doing this morning here in this room is significant. This is the way that God is unfolding His ongoing salvation of the world by choosing a people for His own possession and through them to restore the worship of God on earth. Notice how the psalmist transitions from addressing the whole earth in verse 1, and now he speaks to a specific or particular people in verse 3. Look there in verse 3. Now, Know the, I'm sorry, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So the psalmist, you see, is now addressing the covenant people of God, and he includes himself among them. He is going from talking about the whole earth to talking about us now. And the emphasis here, what distinguishes these people from the rest of the world, is that they belong to God. Notice the, the structure of the second part of verse 3. It is like a sandwich, ham and cheese sandwich. You have four phrases, and the first and the last are like your bread in the sandwich. So it is God who made us, and we are the sheep of His pasture. And then the two middle phrases are like your, your meat in the middle of the sandwich. And that is where our attention should be. We are His. We are His people. So the emphasis here is that Israel, in this case, among all other nations, is the people of God. They belong to Him. 
So God is not concerned with leading sheep from another fall. He cares for His own sheep, His people. These people are made by God and known by God and are called to know Him as their covenant Lord. That's what in verse 3, the word, that, that name for God, Lord, that's what that is. It's the covenant name of God. Know that the Lord, He is God. And therefore, in verse 4, it is God's people who are now called to offer thanksgiving to Him. So just as in verses 1 and 2, God's, uh, God's people are also called to enter the courts of the temple with praise. But notice the last part of verse 4. The giving of thanks and the blessing of God's name are unique to God's covenant people. So you see, it is the people of God who know the name of God. And it is His covenant name, the Lord, that they are called to bless. Thanksgiving, in other, in other words, is what sets the people of God apart from the rest of the world because thanksgiving is rooted in knowing God as the Lord of the covenant. That's what sets the people in verse 3 apart from the whole earth in verses 1 and 2. They are giving thanks to God. The very same thing that the nations fail to do. So friends, this is God's purpose in redeeming a people for Himself. To make them a priesthood, to serve Him in the offering of thanksgiving, and to mediate His glory to the world by blessing His name. No other people on the face of the planet will bless the name of God. But His people will. His people will. You can recall back in Exodus 19 and how the Lord refers to Israel as His treasure possession among all peoples on the earth. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation, He calls them. That's Exodus 19. And so here's the bridge between Psalm 100 and us this morning, brothers and sisters. As we read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter, addressing the church in verse 9, says this, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So it's pretty plain. The church is identified as the new covenant people of God and therefore are given the priestly task to make the glory of God known on the earth. But friends, there is a way to bridge, to make a bridge between Psalm 100 and to us today that is too quickly and that misses the culmination of God's redemptive plan in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to make the connection between God's covenant people under the Old Testament directly to us. And doing so bypasses and misses out the fact that Adam and Israel, as God's representatives in the world, pointed forward not to us, but to Christ Himself. To Christ Himself. 
In other words, we, we are not the climax and the cherry on the top of God's redemptive purposes. We are not. Jesus is. So you see, God's redemptive plan is fulfilled not in the church directly, but in Jesus. And then applied to the church through Him. That is why the doctrine of union with Christ is essential to understanding not only your own identity as a believer, but also the nature and mission of the church as a people united to Christ by faith. So we are not the point. Jesus Himself is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. And Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. In Ephesians 1, God makes known His hidden will according to His purpose set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So Christ is the appointed one who comes to fulfill everything that Adam and Israel failed to do. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new covenant head of the people of God in whom we are made to be partakers of God's blessing, Romans chapter 5. Jesus is the true Israel, the obedient Son of God, called out of Egypt, tempted in the wilderness, and found faithful to God's Word, Matthew chapters 2 and 4. The point I'm trying to make is the that the entire New Testament reveals that Jesus is the one in whom God has revealed and accomplished His salvation for the world. Jesus reveals the Father's glory and fulfills the Father's word. And it is only in our union with Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, that we, as the church, share in the promise that connects us back to the people of God under the old covenant. So what is, what is the connection between you and us and the people in Psalm 100 verse 3? It's Christ and the fulfillment of God's purposes in Him. Now you may be thinking, all right, man, just tell me what to do with this. What, what's the practical point here? The practical point for us as a church is that for this very reason, we want to be a Christ-centered church with a Christ-centered ministry to the world. A Christ-centered church with a Christ-centered ministry to the world. Because Jesus is the foundation, the center, the climax, and the ultimate end of all of God's purposes. And we have nothing to give the world but Christ. We have nothing to offer the world but Jesus. God has accomplished salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our task is to proclaim Him, crucified, risen, and reigning forevermore. We could be spending our time doing all sorts of good works out there. But our main task, our main calling, is to proclaim Christ as the fulfillment of all of God's promises and purposes. So this is how God has dealt with the problem of sin, by reconciling a people to Himself through the obedience, death, and resurrection of Christ. And in Him, in Christ, calling us to live as a holy people. 
and a priesthood to the world as we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is by proclaiming the gospel that the church now extends and propagates the glory of God to the ends of the earth. As sinners turn from sin to God by faith in Christ. This Christ-centered proclamation is our thanksgiving and boasting in God. This Christ-centered proclamation is our sacrificial offering of thanksgiving and our priest-like ministry to the world. That's what we are called to do, brothers and sisters, to proclaim Christ, to bless the name of God through Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the third and final truth about God this morning. Our call to joyful thanksgiving is ultimately rooted in who God is, in His character and faithfulness to His people, fully displayed in the gospel. So let's look at verse 5, where we see that the Lord is the faithful covenant keeper. He is the creator of the world, the redeemer of His people, and a faithful covenant keeper. In verse 5, the psalmist gives us his main reason for thanking God. Why should God's people come into His presence with thanksgiving? Verse 5, for or because the Lord is good. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. So our thanksgiving to God is rooted in the truth of who God is. He is the good and faithful Lord. He is the one who keeps steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to all generations. That's, this is how we fight for joy and thanksgiving, brothers and sisters. We root our lives and our trust in verses like Psalm 105. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord is the thread that holds the Scriptures together. His faithfulness in keeping covenant with His people is the way in which His salvation unfolds and is revealed throughout the Bible. The steadfast love of the Lord is the, is the heartbeat of the book of Psalms. And it is the, uh, the, the theological road, to use those words, that connects us from Psalm 100 to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because in Christ is where we see God's faithfulness and steadfast love fully displayed. In other words, how can we know how can we know that God is faithful and that His steadfast love for His people will never run short? How do you fight for joyful faith and thanksgiving tomorrow morning where nothing in you wants to get up from bed? How do you fight for joy? We look to Christ by faith. We look to Christ. We look to Jesus hanging on the cross, paying the penalty for sin that we Deserve. We look to Jesus and the empty tomb as the Lord of life takes His life back up from the dead, forever defeating sin and death and confirming His work of salvation. We look to Jesus, 
the apostle and high priest of our confession who has gone before us and has tread the path to eternal life. The steadfast love of God is fully revealed and confirmed in the person and work of Christ. And it is by walking by faith and rejoicing in Him, brothers and sisters, that we offer our thanksgiving to God. As Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So again, the church offers thanksgiving to God as we bless and acknowledge the name of God through our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. That's how we, that's how we give thanks to God. So I, I began this morning by asking the question, are we a joyful and thankful people? Which, by the way, that's a borderline offensive question to ask to many people these days. But I believe it is one of the most important questions the church can ask today. In his introduction to his series of sermons on what what he calls spiritual depression, Martin Lowe-Jones says this, and he was writing in the 1950s, and this sermon series was in the 50s, so think about World War II, post-World War II generation. This is what Lowe-Jones writes in his introduction to the sermon series. He says, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith. And there can be little doubt but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. Brothers and sisters, I, I think these words are as true today for us as they were back then in the 1950s, and perhaps even more applicable to our situation today. Now, before I explain why I think that, I, I want you to hear me well in this, brothers and sisters. As one of your pastors, I am well aware that many of us in this room this morning and many of those listening in have a daily battle of faith against hopelessness and sadness and guilt and unbelief and cynicism and a whole host of other afflictions of the heart that require the faithful care of your soul. Okay? I'm, I'm well aware of that. I know that is the daily battle for many of us including myself, friends, including myself. So that is not what I am referring to in quoting these words from Lloyd-Jones. Actually, those who fight for faith and joy in Christ under the dark clouds of despair are not a poor recommendation of the gospel. Rather, you are a trophy of God's grace in Christ who keeps you steadfastly by His power in your struggle. The fact that you are actively seeking to walk by faith in Christ as you experience the anguish of your soul is an evidence of God's grace at work in your life. It is a trophy of His grace in you. 
So that is not what I have in mind here, brothers and sisters. What I'm referring to is the prevailing cultural idea of our day, which I believe has infiltrated the church, of what some call being real about life or being authentic. And I'm putting those in quotations. It is the idea that unless you publicly admit that you have a hard life, you are being insincere and actually irrelevant. It is the idea that being hopeful in the midst of hardship is inauthentic and offensive to others. So, the idea goes like this. You need to go the extra mile to really show that your life is as hard as the other person's is. And that you have as much reason to be unhappy as the person next to you is. It is actually a kind of competition or race to see who can boast the more about being unhappy. Now, to be sure, friends, of all people, we Christians want to be and ought to be truthful about the reality of our own sinful brokenness and the brokenness of the world that we live in. Okay? Recognizing brokenness is part of your gospel witness. That is true. And the Scriptures are not silent either. The Bible gives us categories for understanding and explaining what has gone wrong with the world. The Bible never paints a romantic picture of life in a fallen world, and so we shouldn't do that either. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The Bible is not pessimistic about our situation either. Rather, the Scriptures are hopeful about what God has done to redeem our broken lives and our broken world. And therefore, the Scriptures call us to confident joy and thanksgiving in God. Friends, there's nothing more real and authentic as believers in the Lord Jesus than to point people to the good news of the gospel and to give testimony to the grace of, of God at work in our lives. If you want to be authentic and being real about life, Tell people about Jesus and what He has done for you. Brothers and sisters, we have received good news. News of glad tidings, as the angel said in the Gospel of Luke. And as Christians, we need, we have to be careful with the testimony we give to the world about our lives. We need to be careful because our testimony will either magnify the grace of God in Christ or it will diminish it. The idea that on one hand the gospel is enough and on the other hand that your life is miserable, is inconsistent and a poor recommendation of God's faithfulness and steadfast love for His people. You cannot have a sufficient Christ and an insufficient and boring and unhappy miserable life, friends. It goes against your testimony of God's grace at work in you. And so the fact that the, Christian, that the faithful Christian life is unimaginably hard doesn't mean that your life has no ground for confident hope and joy in God. Friends, life is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. Keeping a job is hard. Being a member of a local church is hard. Pandemics are hard. Apparently. 
But the fact is, we have been given 10,000 blessings in Jesus Christ. You have been forgiven of your sin through the precious blood of Jesus. You have been given an imperishable and abiding word of promise in the Word of God. And you have been given a living hope that awaits you the the revelation of your Savior. You have been redeemed by Christ, united to Christ by faith, and are being kept by the power of God through faith in Christ. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you freely in Jesus. There's nothing that you need for today that God has not given you, and there's nothing you will need tomorrow that He has not promised to give you when you need it. So Psalm 100, especially verse 5, is clear this morning. We have a reason for joyful thanksgiving because the Lord our God is good and His steadfast love endures to all generations. He is the creator of the world. He is the redeemer of His people. And He is the faithful, covenant-keeping God whose faithfulness in Christ will never end. Will never end. And so, brothers and sisters, may God be glorified in us and through us as we treasure the glory of God in Christ. It is our task as His holy people and royal priesthood to tell the world of God's salvation and to testify to His grace as we raise our song of praise to Him through Jesus Christ. Amen. I would like to end this morning by reading a hymn based on Psalm 100 as we transition now to our last song. And it says this, All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, serve Him with joy, His praises still, come now before Him and rejoice. Know that the Lord, He is God indeed. He form us all without our aid. We are the flock He surely feeds, the sheep who by His hands were made. Oh, enter then His gates with joy. Within His courts His praise proclaim. Let thankful songs your tongues employ. Oh, bless and magnify His name. Because the Lord our God is good. His mercy is forever sure. His faithfulness at all times stood and shall from age to age endure. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that your faithfulness and steadfast love for us endures forever in Jesus Christ. Help us now, Father, to raise our song of thanksgiving to you as we treasure your glory in Christ. We pray, help us, God. Amen.